Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Direct your attention to verses 13 to 16. Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. And said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Both the scriptures and our own observations and human experience uh, teach us that each stage, each season of life bears its own distinct characteristics. So you think of infancy, right? There's a whole array of characteristics that are, are distinct to infancy, or you think of childhood, you think of adolescence and all the physical and hormonal changes that t take place. You think of young adulthood, or those that are in middle age, or those that are of old age, right? Each of these have different characteristics. The Bible recognizes this. Indeed, the Bible addresses this. And the text before us is, is one example of that. In fact, this, this account that we have here in Mark 10 is given in the same or similar words in all three synoptic gospels. So it's recorded in Matthew Mark, and Luke, and all three of these. Now, we come to, we come to this passage, and so often um, in reading it and even thinking about it or preaching on it, uh, men turn to applying this text to things like uh, the place of children within the public assembly of God's people, that they are to assemble with the house of God, or it is applied uh, to the biblical warrant for infant baptism, or it's applied to things like the necessity of children being called in the gospel uh, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of those uh, ideas are both relevant and appropriate applications that are drawn uh, from this passage in, in connection with other portions of Scripture. However, this evening, we will focus really on the immediate and direct meaning of this text. And so rather than uh, using it in connection, as we are wont to do with other passages in support of issues like the ones I've just mentioned, we want to focus our attention on the immediate and direct meaning of what this passage teaches us. It tells us that to enter into the kingdom of God, we must receive it as a little child. To enter into the kingdom of God, we must receive it as a little child. And so there are three things that we'll seek to highlight as we expound uh, this passage. And first of all, we begin with the heart of Christ. So first of all, the heart of Christ. And they brought young, they brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, 
for of such is the kingdom of God. This text does not open with a focus in the first place on either children or childlikeness. No, Christ himself is the centerpiece. The Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as the sole attraction. Right? You have crowds that are flocking to him. And there are, among those crowds that are flocking to him, those who are bringing children. In a sense, that's incidental. The central thing is that Christ himself is the focus. And he seizes, he seizes this occasion in order to reveal himself to us. He seizes the occasion to reveal himself to us. So we, we know the text well, right? Here you have probably mothers who are bringing children, perhaps fathers, perhaps older siblings. But in any case, they're bringing children to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples rebuke them, the passage says. And we're faced immediately with a question. What, what exactly is going on in their minds, what's going through the minds of, of the disciples. And I don't think there's any warrant for us to conclude, as some do, that this exhibits a, a callous indifference that the disciples have toward children generally. I don't think that's the case. In fact, given the context and the flow that we have in each of the accounts given in the Gospels, it seems more likely that it's actually practicality that is prompting them. It is their practicality. Now, they're wrong, and the Lord makes that, that clear. But you think about it. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's constantly being swamped with people, right? He goes over, he goes over the, 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 the lake, and they all run around to meet him on the other side. Or he arrives on the side, and the crowds come immediately uh, to the shore. You think of those occasions where uh, he is he is being thronged to such a degree he has to get in a ship, in a little boat, and push out from the shore in order to have space to teach the people. You think about how often we're told that he slips through the crowd. Or you think of occasions like uh, with the woman with issue, issue of blood. He says, who touched me? And the disciples say, what do you mean, who touched you? Look at the press. Look at all of those that are pressing uh, around you. What do you, what do you mean, who, who touched you? You have this exhibited over and over throughout the, the past, uh, throughout the Gospels. And so Jesus is being surrounded, engulfed with, with crowds. And the disciples, no doubt, are thinking to themselves, why are you bringing these children? And the passage tells us that those who brought them made it clear they wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to touch them. They wanted Christ to touch these, these children. And so here are the disciples, and they're, they're thinking to themselves, undoubtedly, you know, well, what's, what's the problem here? Are, is, are your children sick? No. Are your children possessed with devils? No. Are your children dying? No. They're not. And so the disciples are undoubtedly thinking to themselves, you know, what's the point of all of this, right? Our master is a healer, and you don't have any urgent need for him to address. 
with, with these children. Or they could be thinking, our master is a rabbi. Our master is a teacher. And so he's come to proclaim a word from heaven. He preaches like no other has ever preached. And he has come to, to preach the word of God to us and so on. These children cannot profit that meaningfully from even his instruction at their age. And so the disciples rebuke them, right? They're, they're thinking to themselves, this actually deters Christ's purposes, right? Being swarmed with a desire for him to touch little children. It's actually preventing his ministry to those who could benefit either in instruction or in healing. And yet the passage says that Jesus sees all of this, right? He's watching all of this unfold and he is displeased. He's displeased with how his disciples are thinking. He's displeased with how his disciples are acting. And so he says, no, no, suffer the little children to come unto me. Forbid them not. Do not keep them back. Bring them. Let the little children come unto me. And I think there are at least two mistakes that come to the surface in this with regards to the disciples. Two mistakes that are notable. They see their master as a healer. He goes everywhere, healing the sick, the lame, the blind. You know, he's raising the dead. He's, he's, he's delivering those who are possessed with devils. They see him as a healer. Right? This is his priestly ministry, part of his priestly uh, ministry. And they see him as a prophet, one who has come from God to proclaim God's word. But they fail to connect the dots. They fail they fail to, to see the relevance of the execution of his offices for children. Well, Jesus makes clear their error because in verse 16, he takes them up and blesses them, which is both a priestly act and a prophetic act. Right here is the Lord and he's saying, no, no, the execution of these, my offices, have relevance even for these little children who can't understand all of the nuance of my teaching, maybe comprehend any of it, who have no need of relief from physical ailments and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, they can receive my blessing. It's notable, isn't it? Because even in our own context, we should think this way. We bring babes in arms who can't understand or follow the sermon or even sing along other than cooing with the praise, who, who can't themselves pray and yet who nevertheless are brought before the Lord and he pronounces his divine benediction upon them. Service after service, little babies who are recipients of the execution of Christ's office and the pronouncement of his blessing, just as we see in this passage. That's the first mistake. The second mistake, which I think is perhaps even bigger, is this is all they're seeing about the Lord Jesus. They're seeing him as a teacher. They're seeing him as a healer. They're seeing him in terms of the utility of what he delivers for the good of, of souls and their mind and so on. And if they're thinking of him as a priest and if they're thinking of him as a prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ brings to the fore his kingship. That's the clue 
because Jesus brings to the fore his kingship. He says to them, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. He's a king. He is Christ the king. Indeed, he is a savior king. And as the savior king, who was foretold all through the Old Testament scriptures, he calls out of the world a people to himself, bestowing saving grace upon them, and then guarding them, and protecting them, and ruling over them, and so on. The Lord Jesus Christ is a savior. He is a savior. And in the execution of all three offices, he's a savior. But as king, he comes as the savior to call people out of the world and to bestow grace upon them. What the, where does this leave us? It shows us something of the heart of Christ himself. You say, well, how so? And the answer is this. Because if, if he is giving open access to the very least, to young children, to little children, if he has given open access to them who cannot benefit at many levels from his, his ministry, and yet before whom he stands as a savior. If it's true there, then my friends, there is an open entrance to all. If there is an open entrance for the least, there's an open entrance to all. Even to you, my friend. Even to you. Christ is showing his heart. He's throwing open this disclosure of himself and saying, I will receive all. Bring them all. Let them all come. You see the large heartedness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The call then and now. The call is to come to him. And that call goes out wherever the gospel is preached to everyone who hears it. It's the call of Christ himself to come to him. He's the one who says, compel them. Compel all of them. From the youngest to the oldest. From the most foolish to the wisest. Every sort and size. Compel them to come in to my kingdom. Because the Lord Jesus Christ delights to receive sinners. He, he delights to receive sinners of all sorts and of all sizes and of all kinds. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ and he is in this account breaking down the barriers in your brain. He's breaking down the barriers. Because we come with all of these barriers and we, we put up hurdles and we put up walls and we erect all of these different types of barriers that, that stand between us and him. And we think to ourselves, well, because of this condition in my soul and because of this aspect of my history or this part of my background or these particular circumstances in which I find myself, these things prevent me from heeding the call to come and to be compelled to come in. And the Lord is saying, even little children who have no need on the outside, 
who have no ability, the very limited abilities, even they, bring them, suffer them to come unto me. Forbid them not, forbid not any from coming unto me. The Lord's breaking down barriers, and he's showing his heart to us in the unfolding events of, of this text. But then secondly, we have the heart of childlikeness. The heart of childlikeness. We need to get to the bottom of this. Because it is clear, the text makes clear, that this is not just about children. This is not just about children. You know, if that were the case, then the, the, then the implications would be that the kingdom of God only consists of little children. Is that true? No, it is not true. He is speaking about child-likeness. You, you see it in your text, because in the text, because he says at the end of verse 14, for of such, for of such is the kingdom. He doesn't say for of them is the kingdom, but for of such as them, those who are like them, if you will. Or in verse 15, he says, um, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not receive it as a little child, right? He's, he's actually speaking here about child-likeness. And seeing that makes another thing clear, and that is everything he's describing is applicable to everyone in this room. The child-likeness that he is highlighting is applicable to all that are present here. To everyone. And so there's a comparison, right? He sees the children which are being brought to him, and he sees things in those children that are being brought to him, and he, he draws a connection between the children and more broadly to childlikeness in entering the kingdom of God. And so the pressing question, once that becomes clear, the pressing question is, what defines this childlikeness? When he says, of such is the kingdom. When he says, we have to receive as a little child the kingdom. What aspect of childlikeness? What, what exactly is he putting his finger on? To what is he referring when he refers to this childlikeness? Well, there are some who would say that it is innocence, right? The childlike innocence, the innocence of, of, of little children. Well, would that, would that comport with what we read in our Bibles elsewhere? You know, the idea that innocence is a condition for entering the kingdom of God? No. In fact, everything flies in the face of that. Innocence is never a condition for entering into the kingdom. What is Christ saying in his preaching? He's saying, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Right? That's the message, the dominant message that he gives. I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. You think of the account given just earlier in, with regards to the publican. Right? What is the cry of the publican? It's the cry of a sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Indeed, if you look at your Bibles more generally, the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. 
The rod of correction must drive it far from them. David says that in sin my mother conceived me. No, this childlikeness is not innocence. This isn't what the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to. Well, you say, well, then perhaps it's humility. You know, we think of children, there's you know, sort of humility, they're small in size and capability and, and so on and so forth, right? The publican had humility. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So maybe it's humility that's being referred to. And the answer again is no. It, it would be true to say that, that we as adults must humble ourselves and become as a child, right? In another text, that is the theme. When the disciples are competing about who's going to be the greatest, you say, no, you need to be humble yourself. And it is humbling for an adult to be as, as a child, to enter into the kingdom. But I wouldn't say that humility is a defining characteristic of childlikeness itself. In fact, children are little egotists for the most part. Everyone who's looked upon the beet red face of a screaming baby who's arching their back and stiffening their limbs and demanding what they want. No, that humility is not the defining characteristic of childlikeness, right? They, they are inclined rather for the whole world to revolve around them and for all of their needs to be attended to at their bidding and so on. Well, perhaps it's simplicity, childlikeness, has a simplicity about it, right? There's a, there's a genuineness, and this is true. There's a genuineness about, about ch children, right? Uh, a simplicity in the sense that they, 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 they don't have mixed motives most of the time. Little children don't have a double mind, you know. Adults can be very nuanced and can be very tricky and have layers of what they're saying and not saying and why and so on and, and so forth. Whereas children tend to be uh, not duplicitous, right? They, they tend to be straightforward in terms of how they see things and, and how they, they say things and so on. But here again, I think simplicity is, is closer, but it does seem a bit arbitrary. Is there anything in the text itself that would lead us to this. And, and there doesn't seem to be that, that that would be the case. Another option would be that childlikeness, the heart of childlikeness is that they're, they're trusting. And that's true. I mean, they're, they have a trusting disposition, little children, young children, because they're dependent on others for everything. You stick a spoon in front of their mouth, they're going to open their mouth and assume that it's something good for them to eat. You know, they're going to trust that you're going to change their diaper when they need it that when you put them in the car, you're taking them to a place that's safe and so on and so forth, right? So there's, there's a sense of, of being trusting. Right? You, you see it in you know, the peace in a baby's face in, in its mother's arms. There's something trusting there, right? There's a, a sense of safety and so on. But here too, I'm not, I'm not convinced that the text drives us in that direction. You know, all the things that we've been mentioning are things which really have to do with the internal disposition of a child. Is there anything objective? Is there anything that's, that's objective about children? And I want you to note a few things then as we come, you look at the text more closely. First of all, what this passage is describing 
is babies. It's describing babies, right? The, the word, it's young children here in Luke, I think it's translated infants, maybe young little children in Matthew's account. But it's describing babies, those who are brought by others, that's the first cue, but also Jesus takes them up into his arms and holds them. So if you had in your mind little kids, like five-year-olds who are kind of crowded around the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not what the text is describing. It's describing babies, you know, those that are probably weeks old, maybe months old, and so on and so forth, which is why the disciples are upset. Why are you wasting the Lord's time with this, right? They're so little. This is one of the reasons they're upset. What are they going to get from, from the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, what is characteristic of those who are being brought, of those whom Christ takes into his arms, of those who are truly infants, who are, who are babies? Well, that becomes, I think, clearer. The heart of childlikeness in that sense is utter helplessness and complete dependence. Utter helplessness and complete dependence. They can do absolutely nothing for themselves. They have to be carried wherever they go. They can't crawl. They can't walk. They can't feed themselves. They can't change themselves. They can't get themselves warm or put themselves in bed. They're utterly helpless, completely dependent, or helplessly dependent. This makes perfect sense. This type of childlikeness is what is characteristic of those who enter into the kingdom of God. Those who come with a helpless dependence upon the king. A helpless dependence upon the Savior himself. Who come, as it were, naked and stripped and unable to do anything for themselves who have to receive everything from Christ the Savior, who have to depend upon him for absolutely everything. That is characteristic of the spiritual childlikeness that characterizes those who enter into the kingdom of God. You notice in the, the passage that follows this one, a lesson in contrast with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler has tons of stuff. He hasn't been divested of anything. Indeed, he's loath to divest himself of things. And you'll notice Jesus' language. He even uses the word children in verse 24. The disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Same language, entering into the kingdom. Here's one who has a sense of self-sufficiency and who will not be stripped of what he himself has and is. And the Lord is saying, see, such a one, very difficult for them to enter into the kingdom. It's the opposite of what we see earlier in this childlikeness, this utter helplessness, this complete dependence upon the Lord. Well, this is the heart of childlikeness. Where does it leave us? Well, there are some of you are tempted to come. You're tempted to come to God. You're tempted to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
commending yourself. And this passage serves as a warning to your case. If you're thinking to yourself, well, this is who I am, and this is the good things that I've done, and this is the good person that I am, and here's all the things that I have to contribute, to commend myself before the Lord, and so on, you are coming and saying, I am sufficient. And I'm, I'm begging for entrance into the kingdom on the basis of who I am, where I've been, and what I've done. And the Lord bolts the gate to the kingdom shut to you in your present circumstances. And he says, you will never, ever, 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 ever enter the kingdom on those terms. It's a warning against self-reliance. It's a warning against a sense of self-sufficiency, commending ourselves and so on. But it leaves us with more. It also leaves the true believer who is utterly helpless and knows their, their, their complete dependence with enormous comfort. Massive consolation here. Because for those who are feeling, I'm wrecked. I've got nothing. I am a disaster. Who I am, where I've been, what I've done, I've got nothing at all to commend me. The Lord says, welcome. The Lord comes with consolation. Indeed, this is a consolation that is sustained throughout the entirety of the Christian pilgrimage. Because just as the Christian enters the kingdom with this childlikeness, the Christian continues before the Lord with this childlikeness. The Christian has lived out of that same sense of desperation. Right? Isn't this what the Lord tells us? Right? We are dependent upon him for everything. Christ told his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. No thing. Absolutely nothing without me. That we are dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, for everything in terms of body and soul, all of the circumstances of our life. There is nothing that we can lean upon the arm of flesh for. And so the Lord comes alongside and he is, he is pouring in the oil of consolation to those who have walked along with the Lord and feel their weakness more keenly than ever beatings with temptation and trial and all the other afflictions and other things that are faced, the Lord says, keep coming to me. Suffer my people to come to me. Forbid them not, never. Keep coming to me. Receive from me. Draw upon me. And I will grant ample, abundant, overwhelming degrees of all that is necessary and the riches of my limitless grace. Keep leaning upon me. Keep receiving from me. So you have the heart of childlikeness. Thirdly, that leads us lastly 
to the heart of entering the kingdom. The heart of what it means to enter the kingdom. Verse 15, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Here, our, our definition of childlikeness is further confirmed by the language of the text. Notice verse 15, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom. Notice that word, receive. To receive the kingdom as a little child. This is characteristic of utter helplessness, of, of complete dependence, of childlikeness. They have to receive everything, right? Gospel In gospel grace, God comes and gives to us what we don't deserve and what we could never have without him, right? The gospel is not coming us coming to him and giving to him anything. It's him coming to us to give what we don't deserve, to receive from his hand. In other words, the kingdom of God comes to us, as the passage says, and we receive it. We don't bring anything, nothing to recommend ourselves, except our helplessness, except our neediness for the king who is a savior. All of our dependence is upon Christ and his work and his offices and his person and all that comes with him. All of our dependence is upon him. Only such enter the kingdom of God. It is received as a gift, a gift of grace. We enter as, chil as children enter in to things, as they receive things in complete dependence upon him. And so the Lord makes clear the heart of entering the kingdom, those who enter on his terms, who enter as babes, receive the kingdom. And in receiving the kingdom, they receive the king. And all that comes with him. What does the text say? Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Those who enter the kingdom, who receive the kingdom, receive the king himself and all that comes from him. All of the blessings that are bestowed by him. It's interesting how often this is actually the description given. You think of Psalm 45. You know, so often the Bible describes as, in one way or another, various forms of language. We are brought to the king. That's what's happening with these children. They are brought to the king. And it's true of every believer in Psalm 45, verse 14. She shall be brought unto the king. In raiment of new work, the virgins or companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Parallel language to what we have here. We're brought to the king to receive from him. 
What exactly did they seek and what exactly did they receive? Verse 16 says, this is what they received. He took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them and blessed them. And this flows from what they sought. Because in verse 13, it says they brought young children to him that he should touch them. They brought little children merely that Christ might touch them. Amazing. I think at a number of levels. We are very tactile creatures, right? We're very tactile creatures. Indeed, we need, God's, God's created us to need human touch. I mean, you, you hear the stories in places like China and others where they have massive orphanages and they're just rooms, you know, warehouses full of, of cribs and the little children are fed food and so on, one to the next and the next. No human interface, no touch. They're not held, right? They're not squeezed. They're not played with and so on. And it actually does stuff to their brain, right? They're, they're malformed and there's all sorts of difficulties that come from that absence of human touch. We know it in our own experience, you know, the handshake, that con physical contact with, with another person, you know, we, the pat on the shoulder or the squeeze of an arm or hug that we give, you know, to one another. I mean, who, who doesn't, you know, you look at a baby, we all want to kiss their cheeks, right? You see a baby with their little pudgy cheeks, you want to kiss them. You know, you want to snuggle uh, little babies. You want, you know, to hold them and so on and so forth. And this is actually full of in the New Testament, right? In ways that are beyond ours. They had the holy kiss and so on. There was that human touch and contact. It's still, I mean, in, in the Middle East, they're, they're far more demonstrative than we are in the West. So that men, you know, brace each other with a handshake, hand on the arm. And then in the Levant, you kiss three times. In Egypt, it's two times. They don't actually put their lips on your cheek, but it's cheek to cheek to cheek, right? There's, there's, there's human contact, there's touch that's there. So we know this in our experience, but what's, what I think is helpful for us is this. You start there and then you open the gospels and begin reading and you read and read and read page after page after page, how much and how often in Christ's ministry the text explicitly tells us that he touches them. So incredibly often. We read in family worship last night, the woman who's um, possessed and she's bent over. He touched her and said, be healed. You know, you think of all those occasions where he touches the eyes of the blind. He, he raises up the little boy or the maid by hand, holding them by hand. And there's just, once you begin to look, your eyes are opened. Christ is touching people and touching people everywhere you go. Page after page after page. His contact uh, with them. He touches the lepers even. And you think, for example, of his relationship with John, who's obviously laying upon his bosom. There's that intimacy and physical contact with him and so on. All of this is speaking about the Savior's touch. And then we come to this passage. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ do? He took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. 
Those who enter into the kingdom receive the touch and the pronouncement of the Savior's blessing. That's what verse 16 is telling us. They're received by the Savior, and they themselves receive the pronouncement of his blessing. You think about the last day. Our Lord has gone to heaven. His physical body, resurrected, ascended, glorified body, is in the throne room of heaven. And when we think as believers of the last day and of heaven and of glory, we think of beholding him. We think of seeing him with our own eyes, the God-man, in all of his matchless splendor and majesty. Perhaps you, you think in, in the sense of perhaps even seeing him afar off, as it were. We think about hearing him, the very voice of the Savior, speaking, hearing his voice. But that's not all that the Bible tells us. No, there's also touch. Revelation 21, verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Here is God himself wiping away the tears of the individual Christian. The touch of the Savior. What's interesting in this passage, Revelation 21 verse 4, is that touch is accompanied with blessing. Right? Verse 4 goes on to describe the removal and eradication of the curse. He shall wipe away tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The sin is done, it's over, it's gone, and with it the curse is gone, and in its place follows, in its wake follows the divine blessing. And everything else that's described in that passage is in essence the sum and substance of the pronouncement of the blessing of God upon his people, the eternal abiding blessing that will be sustained, endure for throughout all ages, eternity without end. Those who come like little children in all of their helpless dependence enter the kingdom, receiving everything from him and receiving him, the king himself. What does he do? He takes up his people, as it were, in his arms. He lays his hands upon them, and he blesses them. This is childlike entrance into the kingdom of God. This is what the Lord depicts for his redeemed people. My friends, how those who are in a state of grace, how we ought to live under the enduring realities of these things. We have the king. You know, we, we can say we have a kingdom. We do. Fear not, little children. Fear not, little flock. It is of your father's good pleasure to give you a kingdom. 
We have the kingdom. We have the promise of a crown. That too is ours. In hand. According to the Savior's word. But the greatest of greatest of greatest of greatest of all. Is that we have the king himself. That we're taken into the bosom of the king himself. Who lays his hands upon us. And grants us his blessing. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come to worship and adore thy great name. What a savior, what a king, O Lord, thou hast given us. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, who would break down all the barriers within our hearts and would teach us the open access that calls us to come unto him. We're thankful, O Lord, that we are called to come not as self-made men and women, but to come as little children in all of our helplessness to receive the kingdom and grace and all that comes in Christ and through Christ. And, O oh Lord, we rejoice that in, in that we receive him, thy Son and our Savior, that we are taken into the bosom of the Son of God. O oh Lord, give us eyes to see it, Console and warm and strengthen and invigorate. Draw out our hearts under these truths. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.